Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 30. In this chapter, we enter into what scholars often refer to as Collection 6, the sayings of Agur, son of Jacob. Now, we can't say for sure who this Agur character was. Some have claimed that it was a sort of nom de plume for Solomon, that he takes on the role of the ideal hearer and receiver of wisdom in this chapter, that may be. Others have argued that he was a wise man from Arabia, that he was a non-Jew ethnically who found true wisdom by converting to the worship of Yahweh, and that he writes now from that perspective. On balance, I favor the second of those options, but as I said, we can't really say for sure. What we can say is that this chapter reflects many of the main themes we've discussed already. It reads almost like a miniature book of wisdom all on its own. If you ever decide to memorize just one chapter in the book of Proverbs, then you would want to consider this chapter as a strong candidate. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now, if you happen to be following along in a different translation of the Bible, you might notice that there are some differences here in terms of how the last two-thirds of this first verse is rendered. The CSB, for example, has it, the words of Agur, son of Jacob, the pronouncement, the man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukul. So basically, translators have to decide here whether they're going to understand those difficult Hebrew words at the end of this verse as proper names, like Ithiel and Ukul, or as first-person verbal forms, as in, I am weary and I am worn out. Trevor Longman III refers to this line as among the most disputed lines in biblical Hebrew, closed quote, which actually, to be perfectly honest with you, I find very encouraging because if this is one of the most disputed lines in biblical Hebrew, we're doing really well. Because in my opinion, either translation works as an introduction to the content that follows. The name Ithiel means God is with me. We're not entirely sure what the name Ukul means, but it could be that Agur has addressed this chapter to two believing young men. Okay. Uh, and, and some say that Ithiel is, is sort of standing in for Israel as a whole. So maybe it's the young men of Israel as a whole. We don't know. But that actually fits rather well with the book of Proverbs as a whole, which is addressed to one young man and then later is packaged for young leaders in general. So that would fit. No worries. If, on the other hand, it means, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Well, that works too, because then he would be saying that he is worn out from pursuing wisdom down other roads, and he is ready now to receive it as an act of faith, which fits really well with the content that follows. Now, on balance, I prefer that second perspective, but I agree with the Tyndale Old Testament commentary here when they admit it remains an open question, closed quote. So we'll just leave it there. Verse two, surely I am too stupid to be a man. 
I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Now, not to try and present as closed that which remains open, but this is why I feel like the second option discussed above is really the better one, because it fits very nicely with what Agur says here. I think he is weary and worn out from pursuing wisdom down all these other roads, and he is admitting here to his basic incapacity. I think he's recognizing his fallenness. I think he knows that he should be more than he is, but he has discovered the hard way that on his own, he can't be more than he is. That's poverty of spirit. And Old Testament and New, that's where really good things begin to happen. Bruce Walke explains that the grammatical construction used here suggests that he is less than human because he lacks both understanding of the divinely established moral order and, though presumably instructed, he had not learned wisdom. Close quote. That insight is worth the price of admission alone. This is the biblical worldview in a nutshell. The Bible presents human beings as creatures of enormous dignity and worth. The the Bible comes within a whiff of blasphemy and calling men and women image and likeness of God. We, We balk at that, rightly so. That's an incredible statement. But that statement in the Bible is followed by an account of the fall. So the biblical picture is that we are supposed to be almost godlike. But in reality, we are almost beast-like. That is the human condition. And the only answer to that condition is a relationship with Almighty God. That's what Agur is saying here. Verse 4, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. All right, so the answer to all those who questions is no human being, only God. And the answer to the two what questions is God and Israel. What is the name of the one who is the sovereign creator of all things? Okay, God. What is the name of his son, the one he has brought into covenant familial relationship with himself? Israel. Agur is saying that the only way to become truly human again, the only way to know things and to be wise is to be adopted and taught by Father God. That's some pretty good Old Testament gospel right there. Now, as New Testament readers, we can actually dial that up a notch because Jesus says in John 3, 13 to 15, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, close quote. So Jesus is the true Israel. He's the ultimate covenant son, and he is also truly God. So he's the answer to all of the questions Agur just asked, making him the source of all life, health, wisdom, and salvation for all human beings. Thanks be to God. Verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Yes, so most immediately, this is Agur's profession of faith. He is saying that at the end of the day, 
we don't claw our way up out of the pit of our fallenness. We are lifted up by receiving every word of God as true. We achieve life and stability, wholeness and security by trusting in Yahweh and Yahweh alone. R.D. Moore says here, Knowledge of the Holy One depends not on a human search for truth, but a humble acceptance of the divine disclosure through inspired spokespersons, close quote. So when you receive the word of God, you become again almost God's yourself. I'm using that language carefully. I'm using it the way Jesus used it in John 10. He said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am a son of God? Closed quote. So there, Jesus is citing Psalm 82, where God addresses human leaders and judges who had the word of God, and he calls them gods in some sense. So the argument Jesus is making is that if it was legitimate for God to call them gods to whom the word of God came, then how much more is it legitimate for him to be called the Son of God, given that he is the Word of God incarnate? So zooming out, the implication here is that possessing the Word of God ennobles the human soul. Whoever receives it in faith becomes almost a different category of being. That's the point that Agur is making here. And it accords with Psalm 82, it accords with John 10 and pretty much the entire storyline of the Bible. The Word of God is creative and restorative. Praise the Lord. Now, here in verse 7, we enter into Agur's prayer. It runs through to the end of verse 9. He says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. One of the commentators I consulted here gave this section the title, Lead Me Not Into Temptation, which I think suits it very well. Agur is expressing a desire here to be free from deceit, greed, and poverty, all of which, of course, are challenges in the life of faith. He is positioning himself here as a believer, a convert, and he is saying, I don't want to be deceived into taking some kind of off-ramp that leads away from God and out into death and ruin. Keep me from counterfeits, traps, and snares. And I don't want to be so poor that I'm ever forced to steal and, and shame myself and dishonor God. And I don't want to be so rich that I become arrogant and forgetful toward God. Give me a straight path. Oh, God, put some bumper rails up so that I don't wander off into the ditch. That's a fantastic prayer for new and older believers alike. Now, in verses 10 to 33, we come to the main body of Agur's teaching, which, as I said in the introduction, reads almost like a miniature book of wisdom all on its own. Verse 10. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. 
It is interesting that Agur begins here in the same place that Moses began his expansion upon the law in Exodus 21. The Ten Commandments, of course, are given in Exodus 20. And then in the next several chapters, we have a series of expansions and applications. And the first of those has to do with protecting slaves. So this is a pattern. To be wise, to be righteous, to be noble in an Old Testament biblical sense is to be concerned for the least and the lowly. Here we're being told not to verbally abuse or malign servants. The servant may have limited social power, but he can always call out to God and curse you. He can call out to God to see and, and to bring recompense. And as the last line here spells out, if he does that, then you will be held guilty. God is the final court of appeal in the universe. And as the book of Proverbs has made abundantly clear on multiple occasions, he is particularly concerned for the rights and welfare of the poor. Wise people will remember that. Verses 11 to 14 speak about four evil things. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Now, part of wisdom is the ability to know right from wrong and good from evil. So here, Agur is identifying four evil things. It is evil to curse your parents. It is evil even to refrain from blessing your parents. You, you should be honoring them. You should be helping them. You should be praying for them. You should be speaking well of them. And it is evil to be self-righteous with no regard for the actual standard of righteousness. The Hebrew here is far more vivid than most English translations will dare. It literally says, that they think they are clean, but actually they are covered in their own excrement. And the point is that it is evil to reject God's authoritative standards for right and wrong and then to celebrate your own disgusting behavior as if it was somehow wonderful and good because you said so. There are an awful lot of people in our culture who need to understand that. It is also evil to be arrogant and self-assured. You are a creature for crying out loud you control nothing you could drop dead of a stroke tomorrow so chill out stop putting on airs worship god and respect others and then fourthly he talks about those who abuse and devour the poor using their words and their speech as weapons don't be like that and and don't do anything to empower that on the contrary if you are a leader of any kind use your influence to restrain and if possible, remove people like that from your community. Verses 15 to 16 speak about four insatiable things. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Alan P. Ross provides a helpful introduction to this section. He says, Things that seem never to be satisfied are problematic for the normal enjoyment of life. Close quote. Yes, <laughs> and hearing it stated that simply helps us make sense of the arrangement that follows. Because at first glance, this is a bit of an odd grouping. Sheol, 
Sheol is a word that means death or the afterlife. In later times, it came to mean hell. But here, it probably just means the grave or death. So Sheol, the barren womb, thirsty land, and fire. Well, the first one is obvious. Sheol, death, does seem to have a voracious appetite. It is never satisfied. It seems intent on consuming all of us. And wisdom understands that. Death is coming for us all. So live your life with that end in mind. The barren womb also represents a kind of desperate need. We think of Rachel, who became bitterly jealous of her sister Leah, crying out to her husband, saying, Give me children or I die. Genesis 30, verse 1. So the idea here would seem to be that when a primal need is not met, human beings can be destabilized. That is a sad truth, but a truth nonetheless. The land never satisfied with water would certainly have been an accessible metaphor to folks living in that region. People in Israel went to bed thinking about rain, and they woke up thinking about rain. And when it did fall, it could be discouraging to see how quickly it was soaked up and consumed by the thirsty ground. Some needs are impossible to completely satisfy, and you can give everything you have and not even touch it. That's the basic idea here. The last of the four insatiable things is the fire that never says enough. The principle being illustrated here is that fire runs on fuel. As long as there is something to burn, the fire will never go out. And of course, the flip side of that is if you remove the fuel, then essentially you solve your problem. However, as anyone living in a heavily forested area will tell you, in some situations, that is easier said than done. In verse 17, we have a further warning against being disrespectful toward parents. He says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. The basic message here is that creation itself will push back against the child who disregards one of the most fundamental principles in the natural order, which is that children should honor their parents. In verses 18 to 19, we meet another of those numbered sayings. Here we have four awesome things, followed in verse 20 by one awful thing. We'll read those together. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. All right, so the four awesome things are the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. These are all things that can be admired, but not entirely explained. Now, of course, the modern man is going to pipe up and say, well, we know how eagles fly nowadays, and, and we know all about hydrodynamics, and we know all about zoology, and we know all about the science and chemistry of human pheromones. <laughs> but as our fascination with science as a culture begins to wane, I think more and more people are starting to realize that knowing something from a naturalistic perspective, is not the sum total of knowing. An eagle in the sky is still a wonder to behold. And no matter how much you know about physics and buoyancy, a ship in the high seas is still a terrifying thing to experience. A serpent winding its way across a rock 
will still make you stop and stare. And the way of a man with a woman? Well, who has ever really claimed to understand that? There is an abundance of magic and mystery in this universe, despite all our knowledge and understanding. And there is still something jaw-droppingly awful about a person who engages in blatant acts of personal and social sabotage. When we see a man or a woman make shipwreck of their family and, and shipwreck of someone else's family, also that they can have sex with a younger model, we can only shake our heads and wonder, what in the world were you thinking? Why would you break the hearts of your kids? Why would you throw away a 25-year friendship? Why would you crater your own social and economic situation? All for what? Five minutes of better sex? That doesn't make sense to anyone. Now, I'm sure that there's some kind of compelling scientific explanation, but even still, it remains a mystery. How does sexual temptation do that to people? How does it make us lose our minds? How does it make us do something that is the spiritual, moral, social, and economic equivalent of swallowing a hand grenade? I don't know. There are some things in life that simply cannot be explained. God have mercy. In verses 21 to 23, we encounter what Bruce Walke describes as four upside-down social situations. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Now, I should probably point out that the whole three things and four things motif was a fairly common literary device in that culture. You see it in other places in the Bible. Check out Amos chapter 1 and 2, for examples. It's meant to communicate completeness and thoroughness of inquiry. So here we're being told that there are three, indeed four, social situations which put pressure on the normal order of things. When a slave becomes king, when a fool is well-fed, when an unloved woman gets a husband, and when a maidservant displaces her mistress. And the basic idea here is that when certain people are elevated in their status too far and too fast, it puts stress on the social order. A slave may have noble character, but will he know everything he needs to know to run a country? A fool who becomes rich and prosperous probably did so by sheer luck. If others imitate him, the entire economy could be affected. A woman robbed of affection who suddenly finds it might overreact and become obsessed. A maidservant who replaces the mistress might become arrogant and abusive toward the other servants. All of these things have happened many times over the years. And a wise person sees these sorts of patterns and takes note. In verses 24 to 28, we are told about four things that are small, but exceedingly wise. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. We're probably intended to learn about diligence from the ant, ingenuity from the rock badger, cooperation from the locusts, 
and elusiveness and boldness from the lizard. In verses 29 to 31, we learn about four things that are majestic. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. Tremper Longman III provides an excellent and succinct summary of this numerical teaching. He says, Power breeds confidence, and confidence is reflected in the way one walks. Closed quote. Exactly that. Some people walk through the world confidently because they are powerful. Other people walk through the world confidently because they are ignorant. A wise person will learn how to tell the difference. Verses 32 to 33 represent the closing counsel of the sage. He says, If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. With this final warning, the message of Proverbs 30 has traveled full circle. It began with agar in the dust. And he said that was where his upward journey really began. It began with humility. You can't just start strutting around in the world like a rooster or a lion. You can't just fake it till you make it. That's a fool's errand. If you try to rise without anything real behind you or inside you, you will only upset the social order and bring wrath and recompense down on your own head. If you've been doing that, Stop, put your hand over your mouth, shut up, and join me down here in the mud. That's what Agar is saying. Humility is the gate that leads to true humanity. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet